Welcome to HivriaCast, the podcast where I, Alad Nehrai, speak with some fascinating and incredible creative Jews. All right, welcome to HivriaCast. This is Season 2, Episode 3. Um, I'm very excited. We have a very uh, special guest, I think our first overseas guest. Um, I'm sure he came just for Hebrea cast, so I'm excited for that. It was a long um, swim. Yeah. <laughs> so all the way from Australia, basically, or did you dig from like from one end to the other? Which... No, I've never worked out where on the globe we sit relatively, so I, I'll just go for the, I, I did backstroke the entire way. <laughs> Got it. Okay. So yeah, basically, literally came across the world uh, to visit us and uh, welcome Bram Presser. So good. Did I say it correctly? You did. Okay. You, did. you did. There's no like, you know, international inflection issues <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> I shouldn't try to do an Australian okay, accent. It's, it's Bram Press. No. <laughs> no, no, no. So welcome, Bram. It's good to Thank have you. you. Oh, thanks for having me. So uh, let's get right into it. Tell me a little bit about who you are, what you do. And I know, I mean, we'll get, we'll also talk about your novel soon, but why don't you tell sure. me? Sure. So uh, I don't know, you know, I'm a, I'm a nice Jewish day school boy from uh, Melbourne, Australia, who <laughs> went horribly wrong somewhere along the way and started a <laughs> punk band called Yidcore, yeah. which uh, was really just a university joke that uh, ended up going well, far better than it ever deserved to, and uh, we toured. We actually toured here a bunch of times. We uh, we uh, it was weird. We played CBGBs a lot. We and we also like it was. We were playing both like punk venues and then like shul halls, um, which was kind of strange. So to clarify, you were, this was a Jewish punk Jewish punk. Yeah, we were kind of like a comedy. We I used to call us uh, Mel Brooks on speed. We were kind of just like a silly. Uh, we we were just. Jewish jokes put to really fast, loud music, basically, wow. and also attempts to woo Natalie Portman. That was, that was pretty much all it was about. Uh, yeah, wow. make bad Jewish jokes and 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 end up marrying Natalie Portman. Wow, how did that work out? We did well with the Jewish jokes. Okay, uh, <laughs> it's one out of two. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I still think I got halfway to the goal. So, wow! You know. But uh, no, it was great. And uh, and then uh, somewhere along the way, I became a lawyer. And, you uh, are a lawyer. Yeah, yeah. You don't I, and, uh, strike I, and, me as a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> what makes you say that? <laughs> uh, and then I went to. Uh, I actually was lecture. I was what in America you would call a law professor, um, but in Australia what? we just call a lecturer, ah, right? Like a professor is like the highest of high kind of, mm. uh, um, you know, roles you can be in university, whereas, you know, those who just, you know, give lectures are just lecturers. Um, but Maybe anyway, like I'll our... take the professor thing. I, you know, I'll, I'll, I, I always wanted to be Professor Presser, but I never <laughs> got there. Uh, I should have just come to America and I would yeah, be fine. Exactly. But, um, yeah, and so through that all I was uh, I was also writing and uh, I just had my first novel published. It's called The Book of Dirt and it's just come out here as well. Um, and that's been a kind of crazy trip itself. So I've had these two really weird creative lives, I suppose, uh, that uh, have both been uh, far more Jewish than I'd anticipated. Uh, (laughs) It was funny, like the band, I was like, at the time when it started, like the members of the band, we were in like a serious band. We we were basically Weezer in Australia, minus the success. (laughs) And, um, and and, And we were trying, you know, we were sending out demo tapes to record labels and getting record, you know, and we used to get these, very funny rejection letters because we wrote very funny like oh, yeah. uh, things. Um, we used to give them like forms to fill in, and, and 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 you know, to their credit and maybe ours, they actually would do it. And like you know, would you ever give this band a record deal? You know, one yes, two maybe three no, four not, a, and you know, get down to like ten. It's like you know, you are the last band that would ever get a record deal, and most of them would circle ten. But, um, <laughs> and, and like you know, we were seriously trying to be like a real band, and then we just did this. So it was the same guys. Same guys initially. Uh, like there was, it ended up being myself and one other guy. We were the we were kind of there from the beginning to the end, and then there was like a revolving door of uh, of other guys. But um, Are you guys all Jewish. Uh, so initially, yes. Huh. Then we we literally we were the United Nations by the end. We'd had wow. everything, right? and it was fan- it was kind of actually really cool because we toured Israel quite a bit as well. And um, you know we had these guys coming to Israel who like had no idea about yeah. anything. Like they got dressed up in Jewish costumes because that's what we did. That was the shtick. 
But, you know, to them it was like it was like literally back in Australia it was just a funny parody. In Israel they were like, like, oh, I'm actually like this is, these are my people, you know. That's so funny. Um, wow. No, it's cool. But like we, so we there was like a university review, the Jewish students uh, university, uh, what's it, or just Australian Union of Jewish Students. Mm. And every year they do like a review and, and, and it's like a, you know, I don't know, it's like a variety show. And it, one year they did it in the form of like, I don't know, The Late Show or something like that. Mm-hmm. And we were the house band. And we were just doing like lounge versions of punk songs and punk versions of lounge songs. Oh, I and, love those actually. Those yeah, so funny. like yeah, I have like an obsession with like stuff Richard like that. Cheese and then Meatless yes, and the Gimme Gimme. So yeah. they were like the two kind of benchmarks. And we thought because yeah. it's a Jewish one, like – Let's just do a a Hebrew song, like because right. yeah, people. Well, no, and so we did Yerushalayim Shel Zahav, and uh, you know it was basically name the song that you are most scarred by from from school, you know, school days from the camp, school camps. Yeah, and that was it. Like you know, Yerushalayim Shel Zahav was drilled into us wow. um, over years. Anyway, so we did it as a punk song. We thought nothing of it. We we thought and and. It got the best reaction by far out of any song that we did. I still think the other songs were funnier, but like, you know. <laughs> That's who, like a classic a, artist thing, right? Well, yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. You think? <laughs> it's, it's, it's like when, when my writing thing started. Yeah. It started by me entering a short story competition, like a big short story competition in Australia, and I'd written what is actually now the first chapter of the book, mm. and I, I entered that as a second thought, and I entered another story. And then when the guy called me, like from the newspaper, to, and he said, "Oh, are you presser," I'm like, "Yeah." He goes, "Did you write crumbs?" I'm like, "Yeah." He goes, "Oh, it's one." And I'm like, "So what was wrong with the other story?" Like, you know, <laughs> that was your the other story was better. But anyway, <laughs> um, so we, when we did the the review, um, this guy in the audience was like a music producer, and he came up to me and he said, "Have you considered recording that?" And I said, "Of course not. It's ridiculous." And he said, "Well, you know, it's it's um it's 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 summer holidays coming up, so let's just record a little EP or something over the and and um and we'll you know get, I just thought you know give it out to our friends or maybe sell it to Orgis members or something like that. I'm driving down like Carlisle Street, which is like the main Jewish street of Melbourne. Yeah. So which means I'm driving on the sidewalk because no one drives properly in that street. It's like it's terrible. But yeah. anyway, um and a friend calls and he." This friend calls. Sorry, by then he's a friend. I, I, I like just adopt people, right? Like, so, anyway, <laughs> so this was the so same. The one. producer guy called, calls me and he says, "You know, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I sent that demo off to a friend of mine who lives in New York, yeah. and um, he used to work at EMI in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Right? And he's come over to New York and he started his own little label, and he really wants to put out an album by by this Jewish punk band." Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, this guy wants to learn, never make any money, right? <laughs> and he said, no, he thinks it's uh, it's funny. but uh, So, uh, okay, we'll do it. So we spent uh, the winter holidays recording an album. And next thing I knew, we were in New York. And we were like our first New York gig was some random place I, I can't remember. But like the second or third one was at CBGB's. Mm. And for some reason, Hilly Crystal really liked us. Like he just, Who's and that? he was the founder of CBGBs, and by that oh, point he was like, you know, 157 years old, and <laughs> um, and you know, I, I still, you know, he'd still turn up there. I mean, he was the guy that was pretty much, you know, responsible for punk, you know, because he, he wow. gave a stage to the Ramones, to wow. to you know all those the bands, you know, television, etc. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> so he's standing there and he's like, you know. Um, what do you call it? The Hawaiian shirt yeah. and 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 safari shorts <laughs> on a cold <laughs> winter on a cold uh, winter's night. He had a look, uh, but yeah, no, he, he liked <laughs> it, and he's like, you know, you know, any any time you guys want to play here, you know, you can play here. So, yeah. so it became our, our our home, and and we just had this really weird thing happening where we had these shows where people would turn up, and half the audience, well, actually. I'm making it to thirds. A third of the audience were like Chabadniks. So we had like black hat, black coat at a punk show. Right? Yeah. The next third were kind of disaffected Jews who were kind of like, I have had nothing to do with Judaism for 10 years since, mm-hmm. you know, my parents forced me to go to summer camp or whatever. Uh, but here's something that speaks to me. And so, um, you know, I, this, this is actually a way to kind of enjoy being Jewish um, without having to do the usual stuff. Um, and also, I think, you know, like me, they kind of got a 
a bit of enjoyment out of essentially essentially slaughtering the sacred cows, right? And kind of dishing it up as neat, neatly compressed hamburgers. <laughs> and um, they, so, and then the third yeah. were skinheads. No way. Like, yeah, so this is the weirdest part. I still remember. What? <laughs> the first show at CBGB's, there was, no there was a circle pit uh-huh. and it was Chabadniks. <laughs> oh, my God. These disaffected Jews and skinheads, right? And... S- one of the skinheads, uh, it's so weird that I still remember this, but one of the skinheads was a, um, uh, like, he was a Navy guy. He was on on leave or whatever it was, yeah, shore leave or whatever it was. Yeah. Anyway, he comes up to me after the show. He goes, oh, you guys are great. Are you white pride? And I was, like, laughing. I'm like, you've, I didn't say it. I'm like, you've clearly missed the point of it. Like, we're, we're dressed in, like, you know, tzitzit and, like, you know, fake payers and, and like I'm screaming into a rubber wow. chicken. I'm half naked covered in hummus, you know, like, <laughs> like well, this is not a white pride band, right? Like, wow. you know, but, and I said, but you know, like I said, I kind of was just like, ah, oh, nah, nah, and kind of fobbed it off. And then I escorted him across the merchandise table, got him to buy a t-shirt, got him to buy a CD, you know, so out comes this kind of, well, basically Nazi skin. Um, with his Yidcore CD, his Yidcore oh t-shirt. And I'm like, I can't wait for that guy to get back to the clubhouse and tell, <laughs> and tell his friends about the band that he just saw oh and that he loves God. and everyone should listen to. Um, was it really like that? It was like a good amount of... of yeah. And so, how did so, other Jews react to having them there? I, I think it was like, everyone's kind of like, said it, but like, in, a, in a punk audience, it's just like, it's <laughs> such a weird mix that you yeah. just kind of... It's just there and like you just go, whatever's there, whatever the strange hodgepodge is, you're just going to, wow. you know, go with it. Um, <laughs> we had a really funny kind of um, like kind of skinheady experience through the, through the band's history. Um, our last tour, which was on the West Coast, yeah. and we toured with a band called um, Jew Driver. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard of them, but they're like um, – they're, they're actually all from quite big – you know, real punk bands mm. um, and, and they're all Jews, um, but they play parody songs of Nazi skin punk bands. Right? <laughs> Why are you serious? And they're like, they're like, I think Vice magazine did an article on them. They're wow. like the most death threatened band in the world. Really? Yeah. Like, like, anyway. So, you know. That's interesting. Very, it's like they took your experience and like turned it into something well, artistic. Like that, exactly. that presence of these. Well, so they, so, we uh, they actually they they were around before we were right oh, yeah. Uh, yeah yeah but they oh. they and they're, they're probably all about you know five to ten years older than us great guys hilarious guys I like I wouldn't have the 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 chutzpah to do the, what like yeah. I thought we were pretty chutzpah but they were like they they were chutzpah to the to the millionth degree wow so we're we're in I think it was Santa Cruz yeah. and it was a we called it the a crazy nights tour and they were like. <laughs> They were like, um, every night we'd light the Hanukkah candles and I'd, we'd get the people, the audience to say the Hanukkah prayers as we light the the, the Hanukkah. Wow. And um, <laughs> I get on stage and they were going to play first, but I was the one who always did the lighting. And um, we get on stage and there are like five or six skinheads in the front row with their arms crossed, like glaring. Really? And And I'm like, okay, so this is how the show works. No one's playing any music until we until we do the Hanukkah prayers and light the candles. And these guys are just looking at me. I'm like, I'm like, okay, I've got a, I, I have two choices. I can either like chicken out at this point, or I have to double down. So I'm like, <laughs> I'm Australian. Um, okay. Uh, so I start. I'm like Baruch, and there's like a few people in the back are saying Baruch, and these guys are just standing there glaring. So, so I said, this show is not starting until you guys hear. Like pointing at them, say the prayers. And I'm like, okay, ready? Baruch. And I still, I can remember their faces because like, it still cracks me up to this day. You just have to imagine like six angry skinhead guys just looking, wow. going, Baruch. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and I got, the, I got through the, I get off stage and the singer from Jew Driver says to me, what, what on earth was that? I go, ah, oh, you know, it's funny. He goes, it's not funny. That's like it's dangerous. I go, no, nah, we, you know, in Australia, occasionally we come across these guys and it's really, it's not a problem. And, and he says to me, yeah, but in America they have guns. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and like, we actually ended up having to like um, wait in the dressing room after the show until security could escort us out to get out safely. Oh my but, God. Yeah. Wow. It was funny. That's some interesting uh, political commentary right there. I didn't expect that yeah. ending. But that's, wow, that's really interesting. 
I'm so fascinated by that. I mean, and there's also, I mean, that itself is like a whole discussion, but I'm also, I also find it interesting. Like one of the things that I've noticed as someone who like works in Jewish creativity, whatever, is this idea that in a lot of other Jewish worlds, the, the vision of like orthodox and like disaffected or unengaged, however you define them yeah. is mu- and everything in between is like much more, uh, like, it's, I mean, and definitely in the diaspora, it's like much more divided, you know, it's yeah, like yeah. you have an orthodox event or you have a, this event or whatever. But when it comes to like, you know, like Manas Yahu shows, for example, yeah, or, yeah, right. or Yidkor, uh, apparently, um, <laughs> you have this kind of crossover that you don't have in other places. And I feel like I've seen that in Hevria too, which is why I bring it up. Yeah, right. Know? And I, I was fine. And also, by the way, it was yeah. also in Israel as well. Like, it was in actually Israel really too, interested, right? uh, interesting to see what the what the the kind of audiences were in Israel. Like, Any skinheads there? <laughs> <laughs> actually, you know what? Weirdly, so in the I didn't know this existed yeah. in Israel. There are actually like far right skinheads, Jewish. They're not like you know, but they they're like you know anti everything else, right? Wow. And and we actually there was a, a band that like kept emailing me and saying, you know, next time you come to Israel, you know, can we support you? Can we support you? And I'm like, I think I'm a nice guy. So I didn't, I, I don't know, I know nothing about the Israeli bands. I'm like, sure, whatever, you know. And um, we had this show and they were the support one and we were getting emails from, how are you letting these Nazis support you? These guys are terrible. And it was really awkward because I'm like, well, how do we now get out of this? So, but it shocked me that that existed, right? Yeah, wow. Yeah. Like, it's actually interesting. It reminds me of a quote. I don't remember who it was. One of the founders of Israel, or at least it was involved, they uh, said that they'll like see Israel as being a success once they have thieves and, and yeah, murderers yeah, yeah, and yeah, stuff. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because then it's a real country. That's so right. That's right. If you're, I mean, we're talking Jewish uh, skinheads, then it's a real success. But it, <laughs> it's sense. so weird, right? Yeah, like, it is. And, and, and it was it, like it was slightly disturbing, but then you just realize like every country has its nationalists. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, and and. Like in the, I mean, the punk scene is it tends to be reasonably politically left, right? And so it's kind of weird. So, but like, but punk music also has, and this used to be the question we were asked really often because we mostly were not accepted a great deal in the Jewish world, particularly not in Australia. Like we were very, <laughs> very much part of the. Well, I don't know what you call it, the, the regular music scene, the regular punk scene. We had songs in the charts. We were like on TV, we had, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Jews hated us, right? Because they thought we were like making a mockery and and, and, and what have you. And What kind of Jews are we talking? Like like uh, the establishment? Yeah, or? the establishment. Right, right. But the thing is like, I think, I think it's a bit different now, but, but yeah. when the band started, we're talking, you know, almost 20 years ago. Yeah. It, it really was quite a conservative small C um, yeah. community. And, the establishment had a much stronger hold. Um, I think there's become a more, I don't know, for want of a better term, a more Tikkun Olami um, strand coming through the community. I think that's probably general in the diaspora as yeah. well. Um, and so there's a shift to kind of social issues, human rights and what have you, um, and also different kind of engagements with religion. Um so, but back then it was it was <laughs> like they they there was a teacher at my at my uh, high school, because mm. um, we played there a few times. We would go back to the to where we where it all began, <laughs> yeah. and uh, there was a teacher there who told her students <laughs> like I, I love this um, <laughs> that you know, there's no place in heaven for anyone who listens to Yidcore. That's fantastic! Wow, that's, that's probably good. like I think for a Jewish punk band, that's probably like the biggest. Yeah, exactly. It's the greatest success. compliment. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow, but, um, that's pretty. Wait, what, what, what was this in again? What was the? Th- that was said. That was like at a Sunday school or something. No, no. This I went to a, a Jewish day school. A Jewish day school. Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. It's called Mount Scopus. It's the biggest Jewish day school in the Southern Hemisphere. And <laughs> just to add like a bit of like you know icing to the cake, <laughs> I was uh, I was school captain. I was head boy or whatever you call it here. Like, oh, wow. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I, they always make jokes about, you know, the school captain that just went terribly wrong. Um, <laughs> but they say it in like a loving way because like, you know, they, they still like that I've done well 
probably not in, you know, I'm not a, I'm not some high flying doctor or lawyer that they would love to boast about, but, uh, still, you lawyer. know, there you go. well, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> that's what my mom's, my mom tells me. Yeah. They're like, isn't your son, the, son, the, the, the punk musician? She's like, you mean the lawyer? <laughs> and he plays some music. <laughs> actually now she's quite happy with author. <laughs> so, uh, very nice. But yeah. It's so, wow. So I'm, I'm actually curious then like how it's interesting, especially when you have the establishment is angry at you. And yet there are, like you're saying, like the in-the-box Jews who are going in a sense. I mean, obviously not 100% in the box if they're going, but the the in-the-box Jews and then the unengaged Jews. What do you think, and we'll leave the skinheads for another discussion, but like, (laughs) what do you think unites those two in coming to a punk band? I just think that it was... um... I, yeah. Firstly, I've always wondered that myself. I've never actually understood why the band oh, yeah. went well at all. Like to me, <laughs> but you know what it was? It was fun. Mm. And I think that the people tend to kind of go, um, you know, to gravitate to something that speaks to their identity in a, it doesn't have to be a meaningful way always, you know, it doesn't have to be in a deep way. It, it has, it, there can actually be like this kind of visceral enjoyment mm. and that like, you know, to see a bunch of Jews kind of proudly showing their Jewishness up on a stage, like we play festivals where there were like 10, 20,000 people, right? Like, and, 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 and like to go and say, oh, look, you know, these are unashamedly Jewish Jews, right? Mm. Having fun with the, you know, with, with, with the culture, normalizing the culture outside as well. I think that's kind of like important, like to see, I don't know, like a lot of people don't, I mean, it's probably a bit different in, in actually it's probably not that different in a large part of America, but in, you know, some of America, obviously Jews are very much part of the culture, right? Yeah. Um, and Jewish culture has permeated general culture but like in australia like there are a lot of people who they'll never meet a jew they'll never they'll never come across a jew like we'd meet people when we we're on tour and they're like oh yeah well i've never met a jew before you guys are pretty normal <laughs> i'm like yeah <laughs> so you know i think i think you know kids like and also i mean even the ones I, as you're calling like in the box um like it's kind of cool to have fun with it as well. Like, you know, uh, religion doesn't always have to be this kind of completely sacred, completely um, solemn affair. Like yeah. it should be enjoyed. And if you find a way to enjoy it, um, you know, there was, look, there are some people who thought we were absolutely disgraceful and desecrating, thing, but like there are others who saw that we were actually doing it out of a love, not a mockery. Like even if what we were doing was silly and, and, and you know, it had – um, like we were doing some songs that were pretty like <laughs> my rabbi in Melbourne, who's like a good friend of mine is a couple of years younger than me. And, um, I, I used to weirdly study with him. We used to study criminal law, like Jewish criminal law together uh-huh. and kind of, we'd discuss the, cause I, this is when I was lecturing in criminal law mm-hmm. and, um, we'd discuss just the, the intersections of Jewish and secular criminal law. Uh, but anyway, I used to also play him whenever we had a new song. So, and I always, <laughs> he used to like, for the most part, be quite tolerant. And he's a, he's a, like, he's a Chabadnik and he's a pretty, you know, chill dude. And like, he's a fantastic guy. I brought in our Vinyl Malkano, mm. right? And he's like, no, nah, this is where I draw, the, <laughs> this is where I draw the line. Oh, yeah. like, this, this one I can't take. I'm like, okay. Wow. <laughs> but, um, you know, but uh, I, I think also to, you know, there's not a great deal of difference between um, a mosh pit and a horror. Really, all the, all the difference is is the speed. <laughs> you know, like wow. you, like we 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 that's um, really interesting. Uh, we played a couple of strangely bar mitzvahs for f- like friends' kids, like or you know people people who knew a member of the band. You know, it was always like, you know, the drummer's uncle's kid was having a bar mitzvah and they really want Yidkor to play. Can we play? And I'm like, why not? Wow. And all you just had was these like manic um, horrors, which were looked not dissimilar to what was happening in front of me at a punk show, you know, wow. because, uh, you know, they're both running around in circles and jumping up and down and smashing into each other. <laughs> What's the difference, right? And so, wow. like, for the, for the in-the-box Jews who were, who were coming to the show, they, it was just a, a highly energetic way of having fun to songs that they already knew and loved, right? Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, it was, it was actually brilliant. Like, I, I used to love it. I, 
I had so many strange but wonderful experiences because of that band yeah. um, where, you know, we'd end up in some far-flung place at some, you know, whether it be either a rabbi's home in Jersey in the, you know, the middle of nowhere um, where, it, you know, he taught us – I still remember there was one rabbi in Jersey who taught us um, this new tune to Chad Gadya, which we loved. We never recorded it. We should have recorded it. <laughs> but um, – but, you know, and like it's late into the night and we're all screaming it together, in the, you know, to being in a, a park in Israel with, you know, 200 punk kids who we'd all just come to like all party together after a show and all that. It was just brilliant. Like, you right. know, and, and I would have never had the opportunity to do that if we hadn't kind of pursued this stupid Jewish joke that we, you know, <laughs> that, that, that happened, uh, you know, without any planning. Wow. That's really interesting. I mean, I just think that that, it just says a lot, like how this sort of work, this sort of like creativity or creative expression can be such a uniting force. You know? Yeah, and it's cool. I, and, and, and the best thing about it is that both in my music and in my writing, I had never intended mm. the Jewish thing to be the dominant um, presence. Interesting. And with the music, it was a Jewish joke. And with, with the writing... I always, you know, I was trying to write, I started 4,000 books, uh, not quite, <laughs> 3,700, and every one of them yeah. kept creeping in things to do with my grandparents, right, and things to do with the Holocaust and things to do with Jewish identity. Are your grandparents on both sides Holocaust survivors? No. Or? So my, interesting, my my dad's parents, uh, my dad's father was an American soldier oh, wow. uh, who was stationed in Australia, married my grandmother, Australian, wow. and he was killed in the Philippines just before the war ended and just after my dad was born, wow. right? And my mum's parents were survivors from, from um, Czechoslovakia. Wow. Um, and, yeah, so, so I, it, it occurred to me, like, as I'm, like, trying to write and try to write and try to write, that if I don't actually actively engage with this and write the book about them and about, you know, my, my, my Jewish book, my, my Holocaust book, my grandparents, my family book. Mm. If I don't write that, that is going to creep into everything I try to write mm. and, you know, until I do. Mm. And so it just turned out that this, this, this book kind of almost forced itself on me and, and it's been, and, and I was sort of unashamedly, I, I had the same, the same view on writing as I did on music, which is like, if you're going to go there, do it with, you know, give it everything. Like, you know, let it be unashamedly Jewish. I knew it was for a not Jewish audience mostly, right? Like, and that, that it was, you know, I was signed to a, you know, the like one of the big publishers in Australia mm-hmm. and that that's not, you know, a Jewish publisher by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but I knew that like, and, and that they would be putting it out to the general public as a general book. Um, but I, I was like, I'm still gonna like, like, you know, there's Hebrew in it. There's Yiddish in it. Um, there's, uh, like a lot of like Jewish concept and, and, uh, and, and mythology and, um, like I, I always, <laughs> my rabbi laughs at, he goes, you, you know, you learned more Talmud researching that book than you would have ever done. <laughs> uh, 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 like, you know, yeah. I, I actually intended originally. <laughs> I always remember my editor's face when I pitched this to her, that, and she's not Jewish, mm. that um, I wanted the book to actually look like Talmud, right? So it would have a central story and it would have various um, commentaries going through it all, all around. And, and she, bless her, <laughs> she was like, ah, oh, okay, <laughs> yeah. cool. We'll let design worry about that when we get there. <laughs> and about... You know, about a year into in, into working on it, I, I I called her and I'm like, I don't think the Tumble thing's going to work. I, I'm gonna I, I'm gonna you know lay it out more in straight narrative and the, and uh, and she was like, oh, you look whatever you want if that's what you want. Well, I'm happy for you to do that. Like I could hear in her voice the excitement. <laughs> of like, but um, she's but, good at like letting you think it was your idea. Yeah, yeah, that's right, exactly. <laughs> but but like uh, another rabbi friend of mine um, who is actually weirdly, not weirdly, but you know, he's a big reader, like generally a big reader. He read it and he loved the book. And he said, you know, it's it's really interesting how like 
Talmudic the book actually still is. Like, you know, it does, it uses, you know, fables and asides and explanations and that like, that like it's structurally still, even if you didn't physically lay it out like that, it still mm-hmm. kind of reads like that. And to me, that was a huge compliment. Yeah. Um, not that I <laughs> look at me. I wrote the Talmud. Uh, no, 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 I'm not like claiming that, but uh, yeah. But just the, the idea that what I had as a concept for layout still came through in the book. I, I you know, I'm very happy that that worked. So yeah, wow. that's really interesting. I mean, it's it's funny because I was thinking about it as you're speaking, like how it was really. If you think about it, it's really been art and books, movies that have made the Holocaust a topic, you know? It's, mm. It was kind of how we went from it being, like there was a period where it wasn't really spoken about so yeah. much, and then especially obviously in the 90s, but before that as well, but like especially in the 90s, there was this huge upsurge of Yeah, and like, well, it was, I mean, firstly there was kind of the the, the wave of survivor testimonies uh, right. and memoirs. So, you know, you've got your Ellie Weasels, your Primo Levies, Etc. Yeah, and Anne Frank. And, and, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. exactly. And then you know, obviously, the Anne Frank thing is like had a life of its own. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they, uh, but it, creatively, it really sort of did explode in the '90s and early kind of thousands, mm-hmm. where you've just got these. You know, I think what it was it was the next generation engaging with it. In, in like it was right. It was right. a raw trauma that they didn't experience. And so, like, how do you make sense of yeah. the suffering of? In the most part, people you knew and loved, yeah. right? Um, and so, and, and I think, and now, like you know, where in 2018 you're looking at third generation, right? And, and where it's a, there's even more kind of um, questions and a lot more kind of, I suppose, um, experimentation and 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 probably looking from different angles because you're a little bit further removed. I mean, mine came about in a weird way. I. I and completely unintentional way. I, like I grew up thinking I knew my grandparents' story. Mm. Um, they they never spoke about it, but you know, for some reason, we kind of fashioned a, a survival story, a family survival story, um, ourselves. And they never kind of denied it, and so that was close enough. Um, and then a couple of years after, they they died within about six weeks of one another, and. About about two years afterwards, and a newspaper article was published in um, the Jewish News in Australia, um, saying that my gra- or purporting to tell my grandfather's story, and it said that he had been chosen by the Nazis to be the books curator of Hitler's Museum of the Extinct Race, mm. and uh, and told kind of a story of his. Yeah, it was a two-page article. It was, you know, a spread, you know, a two-page spread in the paper. And um, I'd never heard that story. And to me, that was unbelievable. And so I decided I was going to find out. I grew up thinking, like, my grandfather was a big, like, quite a well-known teacher in Melbourne. Um, Like, he was kind of, he was known as the Dick Duck Doc, the doctor of grammar. Mm. Um, And... He like he taught generations of of students at, at Mount Scopus as well, wow. um, and uh, I, I thought that he had been a teacher in Prague, and then a teacher in Theresienstadt, and then a teacher in Auschwitz. And like I thought, it never occurred to me like what a strange like a teacher in Auschwitz. Like come on, right? right. But like, I never questioned it. So anyway, this thing came out, and I thought that these are co- two completely different stories. I'm going to set out and and uh, and try and find the story. And so the book, which is called the Book of Dirt. Um, is essentially the story of my eight-year quest to find out what happened to them. And then it's set against kind of a, a reimagining of their stories from the kind of the fragments and the photos and records and bits and pieces and whispers, rumours, whatever that I found um, along the way. And it's all kind of through the prism of, uh, prism of fable and Jewish legend and Czech legend. And so it was a, it's a really kind of, I suppose, kind of strange book. <laughs> um, but like I, I think, like for me, it was I found my grandparents' story I mean, I set out to find my grandfather's story. Along the way, my grandmother kind of appeared in the um, in the quest because it became apparent very early that I couldn't find anything about my my grandfather. Basically, the I went to Yad Vashem, I went to Beit Terezin, and they basically said this story is completely implausible. Um, you're, huh. You know, you're, you're you're barking up the wrong tree. Huh. Um, and I was on my way home from Israel. I went through Prague. 
my mum's cousin. I've got a very interesting guy. My grandmother's mother was a convert, right? Mm. So the Nazis didn't take her. To them, she wasn't Jewish. So my great-grandmother and my grandmother's two youngest sisters stayed in Prague through the war. My great-grandfather, my grandmother and her, she was the oldest, and the next one down were taken off to concentration camps. Anyway, so my my mum's cousin says, look, I know you're looking for your grandfather's story, but like his mother had just died. And he said, I was cleaning out her house. And in the back of a closet, I found these. And he pulls out a couple of letters on the most fragile paper you can imagine with the tiniest handwriting. And he said, these are the letters that your grandmother smuggled out to write to her mother back in Prague from the concentration camps. Yeah. And, and my, my mother's kept them in the back of a closet. So they're actually in perfect condition because they've never been touched since for 60 years. Right. Um, and he goes, Oh yeah. And he doesn't really speak much English. Um, and he goes, look, I'll, I'll try to translate some. And he points down and he says, um, here where they use gas, I'll explain to you when I get home. Right. And these are full letters. So like there was correspondence between people in the camps and outside on like official postcards uh, where you were allowed like 20 words. Really? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I so, never heard of that. So this is the thing. I, there was a full postal service in the camps. What? Is that unbelievable? Right. That is unbelievable. Yeah. Wow. Um, and you, you could only, I mean, it was, I'm not going to make it out like it was a greatly functional one or anything like that, but, <laughs> you know, people did get letters, and, but, wow. they, sorry, they got the, these postcards. To get a letter out, th- these letters would have never come out because the letter also mm. talked about, you know, getting supplies in, getting medical supplies, getting food in, right. getting um, – and also it talked about this person, Mr. B, who was the one who was somehow getting, you know, the, the contraband into the camps from my great-grandmother. So suddenly I find out that my great-grandmother was involved in this smuggling network into the camps. And not only that, and then, then, wow. then my cousin says, oh, and did you know that – Babichka, my great grandmother, also went to visit uh, visit your grandmother in the camps. Like what? Like this is she important. went to visit. She went to, she went to Theresienstadt mm-hmm. the, the, and met met her at the at the wall at the gate, uh, you wow. know, the, the fence. And I'm like, this. Is I knew my great grandmother. I was about ten when she died, right? Yeah. Um, and so you can imagine. To a 10-year-old, what an 85-year-old looks like. And she was like four foot seven, right? She was a <laughs> tiny woman, crumpled, impo- like at that age, impossibly old, right? right? And suddenly I'm getting this glimpse of this extraordinary woman right. who did these incredible things to make sure that her daughters, who were kind of, um, you know, cursed with Jewish blood in the Nazi world, right, survived, and her husband as well. Her husband, my great grandfather was killed, but my but my grandmother and her sister both survived. Um, and they actually they just turned up one day at the door after the war, and so you know, mum, I'm home, sort of thing. Um, so she like had a hand in. in so she made them. she made sure that they had food. She made sure wow. that they got medical supplies. That's crazy. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. It's so interesting because I mean I think so. There's like two. Obviously, the story itself is fascinating, but also what I find fascinating is it's almost like. Like you described, like this is a different generation now telling you. You are a different generation telling the story. So you, you like by definition don't have the testimonial no. accounts. So no. it's almost like it's it, it really is fascinating to hear how you constructed this well, story, that, and that's why it's a novel because right. Um, I I got a lot of anecdotes. So Ludwig, my my mum's cousin in in Prague, had actually spoken to his grandmother, my great grandmother, and yeah. she told him bits and pieces. Right. right? Um, so my great grandfather was a basically drunken gambler, right? Mm. Um, so she converted and married him. He ruined the family basically. And then in an attempt to make amends, he offered to divorce her so that she wouldn't be caught up in the restrictions against Jews, wow. right? And knowing that that would mean that he would be transported. Wow. Right? So, and, and this, this is actually in the book. There's a, there's a, Ludwig asked her, asked, yeah, asked her, quite close to when she died, that knowing what you know now, that he basically sacrificed everything to hopefully give you a chance of not feeling the kind of brunt of the Nazi machine, do you forgive him for the drunken gambling and the ruining of the family and whatever? And she said, no. Wow. But 
That's she never crazy. remarried. Wow. She she clearly still loved him, right? Wow. You can love someone and not forgive them, I suppose. Yeah. Right? But anyway, so I, I so what's interesting with my grandmother's side, I've got photos, I've got letters because they stayed in Prague. Yeah. Like my grandfather's side, where everyone was Jewish, there's nothing, mm. right? I actually for my mum's 70th birthday, I, I hired a genealogist mm. to go, do a family tree, a book, a family tree book sort of thing. He, he, my grandmother's side, he could go back, you know, a couple hundred years, 300 years. My grandfather's side, bubkas after two generations, you know, because all of the records are gone. They're, you know, they're all, everything was, you know, is ash essentially. And, um, so yeah, like uh, so with his story, I I I had bits and pieces. I had an amazing amazing things happen, like coincidences happened with his story. About halfway through, I'm already writing it as you know, essentially a novel with also the bits of my story of looking for the for for, for what happened. I get an email from a 95 year old guy in London, mm. and he says to me, "Look." My name, my name is Frank Bright. Back in the day, it was František Brichter. I've spent the last 30 years trying to find what happened to my fellow classmates from 1942 in Prague. Here's the class photo. I want to know what happened to every single one of them, including my teachers. The only person I haven't been able to find what happened was my teacher, Jakub Brand. And I think that's your grandfather. And I know you're looking for him because I heard from B. Terezin that basically... There's a crazy guy looking for someone called Jekyll Rand, uh, you know, with some cockamamie story about uh, the Museum of the Extinct Race. Mm. And he shows me this photo and it's clearly him. Mm. And I'm like, wow. So I actually ended up, I went to London. I met, he lives in Suffolk, actually. I, I went to meet him there and I spent an afternoon with him and he told me all about his class and all about his, um, all about life in Prague. And he actually, interestingly, he had um, my grandfather as a, um, as a Hebrew teacher privately after they closed the schools and Jews weren't allowed any education. So his father organized that my grandfather. So he actually had a personal connection with my grandfather as well, wow. above and beyond him just being the class teacher. And my grandfather's best friend, George Glansberg, who's also in the photo, who died, and who was like one of the great regrets of my grandfather's, like in terms of survivor's guilt, yeah, survivor's guilt about two people, his mother and, uh, and George Glansberg. And um, Glansberg uh, privately taught this guy his bar mitzvah. So mm. he was able to tell me also all about Glansberg. So, they, so I actually had them as characters knowing what they were like mm. at the time of, you know, um, Prague, uh, the occupation of Prague. Wow. And then the Jewish Museum in Prague, who I'd been working with a lot, and they were amazing. Like they <laughs> – I must have been the most annoying person in, in ever. Like I would turn up there every now, every few, couple of years with new questions that were like in, looking back incredibly um, naive uh, to the point of I think, you know, embarrassingly silly. Um, and they were always very – uh, lovely about it. But anyway, so they, I get an email from the woman I'd been dealing with and she said, the strangest things happened. We've been digitising records. We've found your grandfather's name on a whole lot of them mm. on, as part of a secret group in Terezin. And it's all the Nazi records, the worksheets, the transfers, the work transfers, etc. And it's called the Arbeitsgruppen M, Workgroup M. We don't really know what it is but um, this is what your grandfather was doing. And I did more research. Anyway, it turned out Arbeitsgruppen M was something that was nicknamed the Talmud Commando. And it was a group of 30 or so like Jewish scholars, people who were considered of high uh, you know, Jewish learning, who were taken out of the camp to a little house that's about, I don't know, I'll say you know, half a mile outside of, uh, of Terezin. And there they sorted through all of the Jewish books that had been stolen from all of the communities around, um, around the Reich that um, had basically been destroyed. Hmm. Right? So, you know, the communities no longer existed, but the, but the books were being, were being collected, taken to um, Terezin and catalogued. And, and this group was tasked with doing it. And the Tumult Commando is really interesting because 
of those 30 odd, and there were there were actually only there were 30 at any one time. There were probably around 50 to 60 over the course of its existence. Of them, only about six or seven survived, right? They never spoke to one another. They never spoke, they never gave testimony, but none of them gave testimony about it. So it's a completely un um you know, undocumented work group. Wow. That that, that was involved in saving like priceless um you know, Jewish books that were from all these communities, like books from the, the like illuminated manuscripts, books from the like 1600s, 1500s, like, you know, they, and they had the, they, they were, they were tasked with cataloging them. Wow. And so while it became apparent that this whole thing about the museum of the extinct race wasn't true, what my grandfather was doing was something akin to that. Um, and it was still, you know, and it, it was because he was, like my grandfather was the, was the son of a rabbi in a small village in country, countryside Czechoslovakia. He decided religious life wasn't for him. He, he actually ran away during his study to become a rabbi um, and went to Prague to pursue secular learning. Um, and he got a law degree there. And, but, but he was actually taken under the wing of the Jewish community where he worked and he was a teacher for them and, and what have you. So he clearly kept a strong Jewish kind of um, religious uh, presence, even if he was not, oh, sorry, identity, even though he, like, he might have been quite as observant as he had been at home. Um, and it was because he was known in the community that when he went to um, Theresen and his name came up on the, the list of people who might be eligible for this um, Talmud commando that he was chosen. And because of that, he survived because they were given better rations. They were given better accommodation. They were given, you know, he had, he didn't have to do any like hard work. Basically he sat in a room, he sorted books. When he was transported to Auschwitz, to Birkenau, he was healthy. So he was there for six weeks. And because he was healthy, even though by the end of it, when he was like, he, he was in the, what was called the Czech family camp, which was like a small subcamp of Birkenau where the, it was kind of like plan B for the Nazis. If they were, if the, you know, Therese and start, the idea was that they would show the red cross and to show that they treated the Jews. Okay. And they wouldn't, shouldn't have to worry about it. Um, but they knew that if the, if the red cross wanted to see a second place, it was going to be this one. Right. So it was in Birkenau. They didn't shave their heads. They weren't in striped pajamas. Right. What's weird about it was this idea that the Nazis thought that, that, that should they have to show, they could take the Red Cross there. And the Red Cross wouldn't look, you know, 100 metres to the right or 100 metres to the left <laughs> and see that on either side of that subcamp there are starving people with shaved heads and, you know, and there's smokestacks billowing and there are gunshots firing and what have you. They didn't, <laughs> this didn't, uh, like the, the, the kind of hubris of it is, is astounding. Um, so, yeah, so... Anyway, my grandfather was there for six weeks, and by the end he was obviously quite sick and, and whatever, but he had had enough, he had enough of a, a reserve to see him through to the end of his time there. When they liquidated that camp, they chose 1,000 men to move on. My, my grandfather's mother um, was, was there at the same time and they didn't choose any women. The women were gassed, um, but, but he survived because of that. And so basically his learning saved him. Wow. Mm. That's really amazing. And I'm curious, like, how all this, all this stuff is so, I mean, you're going through learning all about your family. You're learning about how learning saved your grandfather. Like, all these fascinating things. And I'm also, like, and connected to that, your sudden success with your punk band. Like, I'm curious how these things affect your own Jewish identity, if if at all, I assume they do. I'm just curious what effect that must have, like to be immersing yourself. It's in strange. Things. Like I, I, I just like I see myself as reasonably secular, weirdly, and yet my the reality of my existence <laughs> is uh, is is very deeply Jewish, and and like yeah, I, it's it's strange to me that that. You know, look, I grew up in a very traditional home. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very, very close, particularly with my, my grandfather. Um, and, like, I've always been like a – the rabbi of the shul that I went to in uh, as a child, who you know, I still know it, is actually his his son is the rabbi who, who 
um, is the big reader. But anyway, mm-hmm. he always, they both actually always joke that I, that I was the one that the father says, well, I was the one that got away. I was the one who was going, you know, was probably going to be a rabbi, <laughs> but, I, <laughs> but I, but I went, uh, you know, I, I turned left, um, <laughs> you know, at, at the crossroads, whatever. Yeah. But, um, I, I don't know. Like, I think that I have come to the realization that my Jewish identity is really my core identity, I suppose, um, in that, uh, you know, I love exploring that there's so much to, like, I'm not a particularly religious person, but there is so much to the religion, the culture, the, you know, you name it, that can be explored in, in, in so many different ways. And like, it's, there's such a, like, a, a creative or all these grounds for creating like a rich creative experience. Um, and particularly in terms of engaging with it, um, I suppose, uh, from a slightly different perspective, like that idea that, you know, don't look on it. Like you've got to be respectful, right. But you don't have to be morosely solemn about it. And so, you know, and also there are, there are fringes that that can be, you know, explored and enjoyed that people, for some reason, haven't seemed to 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 approach. Yeah, what do you mean by that? Like, say, like punk was the classic right. example, right? So, you know, no one thought that, like, here, let's engage in, you know, or, or explore your Jewish identity through a fringe musical movement. <laughs> Right, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, there was it was such a like it was like hilarious, but it was interesting. It was you know I I learned a lot, and and um, I I mean we did like as I said before, like you know prayers and 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 folk songs and that, but we we did the entire Fiddler on the Roof soundtrack as a punk album. Like, <laughs> oh my god! And we did it like as a it was fully orchestrated. We had guest stars from like the punk world and from the uh, you know popular music world and whatever. And like people really got on board with it. It was hilarious. Yeah. Um, and it's still I think musically it was was the kind of greatest kind of experience. It took two and a half years to make a like full wow. orchestra, but like a punk album, right? Wow. Um, and it was hilarious. What's the name of the album? It's called Fiddling on Your Roof. Right? <laughs> okay. And uh, yeah, so like I got to, and what I found was the most interesting, and it's with the book as well, mm-hmm. that these overtly Jewish things have had really great reception from general audiences. Yeah. And the people really gravitated to, to go, oh, I always like in with the, in the punk scene, it was like, you know, these guys are the, you know, these are our, these are our funny Jew guy, you know, <laughs> friends and, you know, we love them. And, and it was, like, I mean, it sounds tokenistic, but it wasn't like we were really right. warmly embraced. And like, I always remember when, um, at one point there was like this kind of skinhead threat against us in, um, in Australia. And, um, one of the, there's a, there was a guy um, who's kind of like, I mean, he's he's, he's got to be in his sixties now, but he's like just like a stalwart of the Australian punk scene, and you know he you know holds up the local bar and like he's just this he's a great guy and he's a cartoonist and a writer and all that sort of stuff, and he sings in a, or he, the band doesn't exist anymore, but he was sang in a band called the Twits. Mm. Anyway, the guy, this guy's name's Fred, and and he had a weekly cartoon in the newspaper and he did a whole cartoon about us and the skinhead threat and he he drew the these like you know big muscly leather jacket of these with like penises as heads right and, he, and like that was this the for skinhead the yeah for the skin oh for the skinhead like absolutely and and the the, the the main kind of pardon the pun thrust of the article was that he um it was just like you know we're all coming together to where with our Jewish friends and you guys can all get lost. You know, we, we don't, we're not interested in you. We, we, we're, wow. you know, you're not welcome in the scene. These guys are welcome in the scene. That's and that was so cool. Yeah. Right? Like, and that's interesting because that wouldn't have happened without obviously your presence in the first place. No. Like, and, and, like, and the whole thing, like the article was like, you know, these, these, the cartoon skinheads saying, you know, we're going to go to the Yidcore show and we're going to do, you know, and, you know, those guys are in trouble and, you know, we're going to make, we're going to make them pay for whatever, yeah. right? And uh, and here comes you know Fred doing this awesome cartoon, like absolutely taking the Mickey out of them, yeah. and kind of 
and telling everyone and like and it was like almost like it might as well have been an ad for us you know it was like <laughs> yeah. hey, everyone come to the youth show it's going to be great they're, these guys are great they you know it's so much fun and but but you know and if there's any skinheads just know you're not welcome we're going to make sure we're going to kick you out wow. that's that's cool and with the book as well like you know the book has gone like very well in Australia in like the non-Jewish world like it's it's one a few of the major Australian literary awards. It's like, it's, this is not like what I would have expected. You know, I, I had this idea of running these kind of, you know, serious, I mean, it's still, it's a serious book, but like, you know, like um, literary fiction that's, you know, I don't know, however, it's some sort of, you know, Basically, I was just going to lean on Kafka, really. Um, and uh, no wonder you're friends with Matthew. Yeah, exactly. That's right, exactly. <laughs> and look, to be honest, the book still leans heavily on Kafka. But le- leaving that aside, That's but awesome. uh, but um, you know, I had this idea of what I would be as a writer, yeah. and then the book that I ended up writing was 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 deeply Jewish, and yet was warmly embraced and like like enthusiastically embraced by the general Australian, you know, at least literary reading. Um, uh, scene. So interesting. So it's like, it's interesting because I feel like that's been a common thread. Like first we were talking about like different Jews being united, but now you're talking also about building bridges between you and the non-Jewish or between Jews and the non-Jewish world. Like, yeah. It's, it's pretty... it's, it's, but it's like the funniest thing is it's like, it's not intentional. Right. Like, yeah. Because I always used to find it funny. We, people would kind of, I don't know, take us, when a, the band um, as going, oh, you know, so these guys are, are great at, at this, right? And like, you know, whether, you know, um, they're, they're great at getting disaffected Jewish kids to love their Judaism right. or, or they're great to get this. And like, I'm like, yeah. none, all of these things to me were were just side products, you know, mm-hmm. like they, the, I never saw them as the the reason for even the intent, like the intention of, we were just, Doing what we enjoyed and 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 what we thought you know sounded good and basically what we thought was funny, right? Yeah. And obviously what I thought would get me Natalie Portman. But um, <laughs> and just as an aside, <laughs> so in the Fiddler on the Roof album, we I wanted we do matchmaker 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 is is subtitled an ode to Natalie Portman, right? <laughs> and it's funny. And we were going to we were trying to get her to do a um, just a line at the end of it oh, saying man. keep dreaming or something like that, right? Yeah. And I don't know if you know Ben Lee, right? But he's an Australian um, singer-songwriter. He's awesome. And um, he used to go out with uh, Claire Danes. At, at the time he was going out with Claire Danes. Mm-hmm. And he's actually on the album. Oh, wow. And Claire was friends with Natalie. And, like, there was actually talk, like, between our camps to actually get her to do this. And it almost happened and then – just um, scheduling-wise, I couldn't. But that would have been even just to have that would have been the funniest thing in the world. But so I almost I came close, but uh, you know the, it, was, it almost, was worth a try. You almost got rejected by Natalie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I almost got rejected on record. Yeah, on record. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but nice. yeah, um, so yeah, it, it's just it, it's just strange that all of these things with the with the band or with the book or that completely unintentional, but like that that it gives. Like I like, or I'm proud of the fact that that it has given people who may not otherwise have had engagements with Jewish culture, mm. um, including Jews, <laughs> that is right, mm. um, some sort of um, experience, positive experience. Right. Um, but it's interesting because I feel like you're the the message. At least what I'm hearing is like the way you do that though is by kind of going into what gives you joy and what gives yeah. you. You have Meaning. to, because yeah. look, this is the thing. Like, uh, joy, joy is uh, infectious. Uh, you know, yeah. if you if 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 you're you can't you can't in a serious way try and get people to enjoy themselves. But the only way people are going to enjoy themselves is through your enjoyment, right? right. Um, and so, like, and, and that's the thing. You can be as ridiculously like the things we did in that <laughs> band were just, in retrospect ridiculous right? <laughs> and but they were hilarious and, yeah. and we would like we just did silly stunts all the time like we we had 
It became a thing in, in Melbourne. We would, like, at shows, we, it was called chauffeur shots. We'd get a chauffeur and we'd pour Manischewitz down and people would, it was like drinking like a beer bong essentially through it's a chauffeur. Most, yeah. And can I just tell you how disgusting that is as well? Because <laughs> like, I don't know if you've smelt in a chauffeur, right? Like, I mean, also Manischewitz, you combine that with Manischewitz. Well, yeah, exactly. Be- <laughs> well, we probably improved it. But, like, <laughs> but um, it, it was just, and, and not only that, like, it, it, we, like we used to get the su- yeah. support slot for a lot of, big international punk bands that would come to Australia. Yeah. And we were getting them backstage to do these <laughs> chauffeur shots. And I thought it was hilarious. It was just like, wow. you know, and there were so many things like that, yeah. right? Um, it's interesting because then you you also have that, it's not necessarily the same emotion, but the same like inner drive with your book, you know, like that. That's what do you where, people that have chauffeur shots? No, not the chauffeur <laughs> shots, but the, like you're doing it through yourself first before it affects yeah. others, you know. Well, I mean, my, you're not like aiming to. My book was really like a journey. That sounds weird. silly saying a journey, but like, you know, it was my own quest. I, I just happened to be right. documenting, firstly documenting my search for their story because it actually became a, a, an unexpectedly interesting search, right? Yeah. But, and also I wanted to kind of document how I felt as I learned things. But then also when I started to think about them as characters, because I, like, I have a strong uh, belief that there's like a truth in fiction that you don't get from like historical record. Mm-hmm. So to have the two playing off one another actually worked really well for me. Mm-hmm. But like also just to write about grandparents as people and kind of, I don't mean to like to like reanimate them, but like there, there was a degree to which I felt I was giving a little bit of extra life to them. Mm-hmm. And um, to me, that was actually quite important in the book, particularly about the people who didn't survive, right? Because, you know, you, there are these massive, you know, there's this massive number of, of people who, who, who died and it's so hard to comprehend. Yeah. Yeah. Like six, six million is like, it's, it's, you, you know, I can't, I can't, you know, more than a thousand I can't think of. Right. Yeah. And so, and these are all individual lives. And, and, and like there's a certain kind of view about, you know, these people, they just sort of, they, they, their, their stories that they were killed, right? And there's no agency in it. Right. And to me, I thought it was really important to give the people who didn't make it agency again, right? And so like George Glansberg for me was a, a, like a, I became very attached to George Glansberg as a character um, and as a person. And I sort of came to love him in a way that, like, I think that had he survived, I can imagine he would have been the old guy sitting next to my grandfather uh, in shul or, you know, at the, at the um, bridge table or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and he would have been the guy giving me lollies, you know, uh, candy in your language. <laughs> um, and, you know, this is someone who I think I would have been very fond of, right? And also the people in, like, Frank's class, in my grandfather's class, yeah. I, I really... I wanted them to be people. These are kids. They're the kids who died as kids, who were killed as kids. Yeah. And they don't, not only, they didn't even get to have a life in, in any kind of extended meaningful way, let alone have any sense of there being a memory of them. Right. Right. I feel like that's why Anne Frank's story was so powerful yes. because it's like, no, this was a person like it, yeah. before she was, a victim or, or, you know, was, was murdered. She had a full. And also that's why life. I think the, the, interestingly, the unedited version of her diary is right. much more important than the, right. than the one her father tried to take any of the sex bits out of. <laughs> right. Right? Because like this was a teenage girl. Right. And a right. teenage girl is a teenage girl mm. is a teenage girl is a teenage girl. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like, so this is like, which yeah. is great. Like, because that's, it's so important yeah. that, that, that people see that she was just a teenage girl. Right. With everything that goes along with that, and she was a very impressive one, very smart. But she also, you know, she she you know, she was sort of discovering sexuality. She was questioning, you know, her life and faith and experience and all this. You know, these this was the essence of what it is to be, you know, a teenager. Yeah. And uh, and so I, I agree. I think that's why why it's such an incredible book. Um, even if like leaving aside whether it's an incredible book as a reading experience, like as, as a an historical document, right. it's so important and so like to give an insight into just what life was like. And that, see, that that to me was, when people ask, you know, what was I doing, 
with the book, I always say my, my number one thing was to give a sense of what life was like before the war in Prague, in occupied Prague, and also in the camps. Because like, I think it's very easy to get this view of the camps as just these death factories. Mm-hmm. And of course they were. But at the same time, they were micro societies right. and people lived and people tried to make do and they tried to help each other. And sometimes they took advantage of one another. And, you know, all of the things that you see in any society existed there and that it existed in the most uh, like horrific context. But we never really read about or hear about living there. Right. You know, we hear about dying. Yeah. And so I think for my grandparents' stories, the life in them was really actually important because what happened in the day-to-day was actually quite, like, fascinating from the bits that I heard, right, and that, that, that I kind of – some of that is kind of best guess, best guess filling in the gaps yes. um, based on various bits of information I had. But then also I had a very strong – I'm very into Jewish mythology. Like, I grew, look, I grew up in a Czech household and therefore the golem was everything, right? <laughs> and so, um, you know – the golem became a very big part of the book, and it's funny when I when I first read that article about my grandfather being in the you know the literary curator thing, the first thing that came into my mind was this concept that when going through books, he would discover a hollowed out siddur that might have belonged to the maharal, and in it was a little clump of dirt that might have been the heart of the golem. And that image came to me at the very beginning. And from that point on, the book, literally day one, the book was called The Book of Dirt. And the fact that the book took a much kind of, the the, the concept of dirt became a much wider uh, metaphor throughout the book, like both in terms of, you know, that it's gossip that you, you know, that you, when you're hearing bits and pieces, also in terms of like the fact that after someone dies and they're buried and then you kind of cover, there's a line in the book which says something to the effect of, uh, you know, you've got to be careful when you're exhuming someone you love because you clear away the dirt and you're not necessarily going to recognize the face. Because the question is, you know, how much do we really know the people that we love, you know, particularly those from generations before us, right? So, yeah, like, um, and then also just the idea that what was I doing with these characters, with these people who I loved, my grandparents, their friends, their family, um, I was taking the the bits of dirt, you know, gossip, rumours, whatever, pulling them together like in the semblance of who they might have been and then giving them life through words. So I was actually creating golems, you know. And so for me, as a metaphor, it, it worked through wow. on the book. It's beautiful. Thank you so much. I loved every oh, thank bit you. of that. Um, that was great. Loved it. Thank yeah. you. Um, do you mind, like, uh, sorry to end it. We're just, like, over time, but it's so good All to good. listen. Uh, I, I would love to, let's, uh, what's it, the name of the book? Is Dirt. The Book of Dirt. The Book of Dirt, right. Yeah. Awesome. And uh, people can find it on Amazon, I guess. Yep. It's on Amazon. It's in, you know, a lot of bookstores. Uh, mm-hmm. It just came out. Uh, yeah. And also, in terms of the Yidcore stuff, if people Google Yidcore blog, I've actually uploaded everything and it can be downloaded for free, all of our albums. Oh, and there's wow. like nine of them. Wow. So, yeah, like, so if everyone wants to write, look, you can buy it on iTunes if you want it to exist. <laughs> but if you want to kind of bypass that, uh, you know, mm. I, I have no problem with people downloading it for free. I, I uploaded it for that purpose. Wow. I got a, I'm very excited for the Fiddling on, on Your Roof uh, album. <laughs> oh, that sounds good. I mean, they all sound amazing. But uh, awesome. Cool. Anything else I should know? No, all we... good. Thank you so yeah. much for having me. And uh, yeah. yeah. Excellent. My pleasure. See you at the Creative Hebrean. Indeed. <laughs> right. so, yeah. Thank you for listening to HivriaCast. I'm Aladna Harai. If you'd like to hear more and read more of our work, you can follow us by going to hevria.com or facebook.com slash hevriamag. We've been recording at the Kalal Studios in New York City, and the music that you're hearing is Voice Lessons by Darshan. Thank you so much. We look forward to seeing and hearing from you again. Call, call out the call.